Hello, and thank you for joining us today on this Ropes and Gray podcast. I'm Matt Postuma, a private funds partner in the asset management practice. And joining me today are George Rain, a registered funds partner in the asset management practice, and Pam Glazer, a tax partner who specializes in both registered funds and private funds. Today, we're going to talk about one of the areas where private funds and registered funds intersect, namely the investment of registered funds into private real estate funds. And just to give you a little bit of the market background, as defined benefit pension plans are going away, private managers of open-end real estate funds are looking for other sources of capital, including access to retail investors. And George, what's kind of the background from the registered fund perspective? Thanks, Matt, and thanks to everyone for coming along. Uh, from the public fund manager perspective, there are a number of different factors leading to the tendency for managers to look for investments into alternative types of vehicles. Uh, first off, there's been a fair amount of decompression in the industry where funds are not able to charge high fees or, or pay high fees to their managers, uh, uh, whereas if, if they're investing into more sophisticated investment strategies, they can maintain a higher fee for the manager. Uh, there's also been a, a rise of passive investing in, in the public markets, so index funds, ETFs, uh, ha that have passive strategies are squeezing traditional fund managers outside of their bread and butter, which has been the public markets. But these are areas where you, you can't have real passive investing. It's a place where active managers can have a real foothold. Um, lastly, there's there's been uh, definitely a, a movement in the types of investments that public funds can uh, make to try to diversify across different asset types. Thanks, George. And you and I have seen a few different structures for registered interval funds investing into private real estate funds. The first one is a registered fund of funds that invests in a variety of unaffiliated private funds. And I've seen these, these interval funds invest in a lot of my private real estate open-end fund clients. Another structure is where a private fund manager is looking for a way to, to access retail investors and wants to set up, in essence, its own public fund structure that can invest in one or more private real estate funds managed by that, that manager. And George and I have worked on those kinds of structures as well for clients. And kind of a hybrid of either one of those structures is a structure in which the registered fund is investing both in privately managed funds as well as public securities such as listed REITs and, and CMBS, which can provide a little bit more liquidity for the registered fund. George, can you touch on a little bit some of the regulatory regime surrounding public interval funds and how they might be relevant to uh, private real estate fund investing? The overall regulatory regime really focuses around the 1940 Act, which specifically regulates interval funds. There's a particular rule on interval funds, which is Rule 23C3, and that lays out a number of the required characteristics for, for those funds. These feature elements such as periodic redemptions, namely that the fund will put out a redemption offer to allow its investors to take out somewhere between 5% and 25% of the outstanding shares of the fund on a periodic basis such as quarterly, which has been publicly disclosed. Also, there is a tendency for these funds in trying to raise uh, investment uh, that they uh, are allowed to conduct an ongoing offer 
so that on a daily basis they can take in subscriptions based on net asset value. Uh, while these are technically closed-ended funds for purposes of the 1940 Act, uh, that gives them a, a little bit of more of the attribute of being like an open-ended fund, given that they're selling daily. Uh, one requirement for the redemptions and the subscriptions as well is that the funds strike a net asset value, which is uh, certainly subject to extensive regulatory scrutiny. George, it's interesting to hear you talk about some of those requirements, and, and based on those, I can see why the open-end real estate funds are a little more attractive for the interval funds than other types of alternative investments. Open-end real estate funds have quarterly deposits and redemptions, and they strike a, a quarterly NAV based on appraisals. And, and as you might suspect, appraisals of real estate are a much more robust form of, of valuation than other valuations of, um, of private equity. Pam, I understand that registered investment funds also have their own special tax regime. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, Matt. Thanks. Uh, most or nearly all registered funds seek to qualify as regulated investment companies for tax purposes. A, a fund that qualifies as a RIC is not subject to a fund-level tax so long as it distributes all of its income and it can pass through the character of that income, for example, capital gains. In this way, RICs and REITs are similar. There are a number of uh, qualification requirements for these purposes. One is a diversification requirement. So a fund can't have more than 25% of its assets in a single issuer, and at least half of the fund's assets must be in securities of issuers that represent no more than 5% of the fund's assets. So in this bucket, for example, you'd need at least 10 issuers that represent no more than 5% of the fund's total assets. Uh, and as we'll discuss, that that can be a limitation for some of these interval funds. In addition, there's a qualifying income requirement. At least 90% of the fund's income has to be from uh, things like interest, dividends, and income and gain from securities. And notably for this purpose, rent and other income from real estate investments do not qualify. Pam, a lot of the open-end real estate funds that I see make all of their investments through REITs. Is, is that a good or a bad thing from your perspective? The fact that open-end real estate funds typically invest through REITs is, is a very helpful fact. REIT dividends qual are qualifying income for the risk purposes, so it's a good way to make sure that the interval fund is receiving qualifying income to qualify as a risk. And finally, there are distribution requirements for RICs, again, similar to REITs, uh, which can be a liquidity consideration, which we will discuss later as well. So, George, if, if I'm a private fund manager who wants to set up my own registered fund structure or wants to get investments from registered funds, how does that work? What do I need to be thinking about? First off, if you're trying to set it up so that you can get investments into a wide selection of your existing funds and trying to essentially retailize a, a group of private funds, you're going to run into some real issues under the 1940 Act's affiliation requirements. Effectively, when a registered fund takes on an investment advisor, whether as the principal manager or as a sub-advisor, uh, that advisory firm automatically becomes an affiliate. Then, if that fund is trying to invest into private funds, which in turn are managed by the same investment advisor, those underlying funds are also treated as affiliates. You run straight into uh, prohibitions on being able to invest in those, those affiliated funds below. One of the issues 
of trying to deal with uh, the, pro, the affiliation problem is uh, if you can find uh, a third party uh, that is unaffiliated and is selecting uh, the underlying funds um, and you, the underlying manager, aren't in turn acting as an investment advisor to the registered fund, uh, then you, then those private funds can come into the portfolio. Generally, the, the way affiliation works is uh, that you technically become an affiliate, uh, namely uh, the, the mutual fund technically becomes affiliate of, a, of any private fund when it goes over 5% of the outstanding voting interest. Uh, there's a lot of hair on what that means, but certainly um, also there are levels of affiliation uh, when the mutual fund controls an underlying fund, and that also raises questions as to large positions uh, for, for registered funds coming into private funds. So that would come into play too, George, with a fund of funds as well, right? They, they wouldn't want to have 5% or more of the voting stock of, of any underlying private fund, even if uh, the underlying private fund was unaffiliated with the, with the registered fund, right? There's enough gray area in this that the question of what is voting stock does actually re receive attention. Uh, the LP interests in private funds often can be structured uh, so as not to qualify as voting securities for purposes of a 5% test. Uh, if the registered fund goes over 5%, the problem you do end up with is that it uh, creates restrictions on things such as joint transactions and a number of restrictions on transactions with affiliates uh, that can get quite complicated, so it's, it's going to be tricky. Certainly, if you stay below 5% of the outstanding units of an underlying private fund, there's no way there can be an affiliation. Um, but there are ways to structure it, certainly depending on the facts and the circumstances uh, and how you're setting up the whole vehicle structure so as to not treat those, those, uh, the interests of private funds as, as being voting securities. How does a registered fund manager decide which underlying private funds to invest in? Is that, is that something that they do themselves? Do they hire a, a third-party manager or consultant? Oftentimes, the managers of interval funds may, may not have quite the same expertise in being able to select among, among different private fund options. Uh, certainly seen with some clients that they'll hire consultants uh, who can be helpful in, in allocating among private fund investments. Uh, you can certainly engage a sub-advisor as well. In the end, the key question is, what constitutes an investment advisor of the registered fund? Uh, so there's going to be a real question of what information can go flow up and down from the private fund manager so that you're falling outside of the definition of being deemed to be an investment advisor to the registered interval fund. Pam, you had talked about tax diversification requirements. Um, how does that come into play when a uh, registered fund is investing in uh, a variety of, of private funds below? It's, it's an issue that often comes up when the private fund advisor has a limited number of private funds and the goal is to invest only in those private funds. For example, if there's uh, only six, five or six or you know, anything under 12 private funds to invest in and those are the only investments, the interval fund won't be able to meet the, the risk diversification test. Uh, but one common question is, well, my private funds are partnerships. Each private fund owns a number of investments. Can we look through the private fund partnership and look at the underlying investments? And unfortunately, I, unlike REITs, there is no rule that says you can look through private funds in that manner. So for risk diversification purposes, you're looking at each private fund. If you don't have a large enough offering of private funds, 
Seattle Fund will have to look to uh, obtain exposure through other means as well to meet the tax diversification rules. Pamela, unlike the 1940 Act, which has its own separate diversification requirements on an ongoing basis, I believe the tax diversification uh, requirements are measured at the end of each quarter. How is that measured? It's measured at the end of each fiscal quarter, so it's a quarter-end test. There are some cure periods. For example, you have 30 days after quarter-end to get into compliance with the test if, if you weren't at quarter-end. What's difficult with private funds is the way you would cure non-compliance is to shift your asset mix and sell some investment and invest in other things, which often doesn't work well with the, these private fund structures uh, and the business desires there. So it's it's important up front when you're contemplating setting up a fund to have an idea of, of what investments you'll be able to use to, to be able to meet the test. And what kinds of due diligence would you do from a tax perspective when a registered fund is looking at a private real estate fund and trying to decide whether it's a good investment? As we discussed before, one of the important qualification requirements is a qualifying income requirement. So one question is, is what is the private fund investing in? Uh, like we discussed, the, the open-end real estate funds largely invest through REITs, so you would confirm that, that they invest only through REITs and thus you have qualifying income. If they invest directly in real estate or through other structures, you need to dig down more to make sure the fund would meet the qualifying income requirements. There's also distribution requirements, so another question is if, um, if you have income allocated to the interval fund from private funds, but no cash distribution, making sure uh, there's methods to be able to make the necessary distributions for risk purposes. Uh, again, investing through REITs is a, is a helpful point there because REITs also make regular dividends. Got it. Thanks, Pam. I'm going to touch on some of the operational issues that come up with registered funds investing in, in private funds. And, and first, I want to touch on valuations. As I mentioned earlier, the private open-end real estate funds do appraisals on a quarterly basis. Usually, those appraisals are, are sometime during the quarter, obviously not right at the end of the quarter. And then those appraisals are used to report a quarterly value for the fund, which is reported to investors at some point after the end of the quarter. But George, I remember you saying that interval funds have daily values, and and how do we reconcile the delayed quarterly values of the real estate funds based on these appraisals with the daily valuation requirement that the, the registered funds have? You're absolutely right. Uh, if the fund is being sold daily, it needs to be sold at net asset value. There are operating procedures for share valuation that a mutual fund board will adopt, uh, which will uh, have to find ways to adjust the NAV in order to come up with a fair price to sell the shares out on a daily basis. There's obviously a fair amount of conjecture over the course of a quarter, uh, so there's a bit of concern uh, that could be second-guessed if the markets are moving around too much and your NAV is, is not moving uh, with them. Uh, you can certainly solve that to some degree by disclosure, but in the end, there has to be a fair value process. Um, you don't want to be creating any dilution of the interest of existing investors or, or charging too much uh, for new investors coming in. One, one really critical time to be uh, 
right on target with the NAV is for the periodic redemption, because that's going to be a, a, a significant outflow, and the fund is going to have to be striking an NAV to base that outflow off of. Typically, you, you do have uh, flexibility to set uh, the period and the timing for your periodic redemptions uh, so that you can, you can go out uh, with an offer um, or a redemption um, coming up with a period of notice and then a date on which you can actually pay out the redemption. Uh, typically, you would try to coordinate all of those pieces so that um, you're as close as you can uh, be um, to, uh, to, to get the most recent information for purposes of valuation. There might be a small lag uh, when you're not going to have all your periodic valuations come in on the same day um, for real estate that's in the portfolio, um, but you do want to work out a process that gets you as close as you can. So at least uh, on the date when, you're, when you have a particularly large amount of the fund going out for the periodic redemption, uh, you, you're coming up with as firm a calculation of the current value of the whole overall portfolio as you possibly can. Another mechanical issue I wanted to touch on was contributions or investments. So with the open-end real estate funds, that's done on a, a quarterly basis, but sometimes depending on the new investments that the open-end private fund is going to make, there might be a deposit queue or a line to get into the open-end fund. And there are times where an investor may have to wait for a couple of quarters before it's able to deploy its, its capital. Now, I remember you saying, George, that, that interval funds are raising capital on a, on, a, on a constant basis. I'm assuming that when they're looking for investments in private funds, that they want to find funds that are going to be able to invest their capital as quickly as possible rather than ones where the interval fund is going to have to wait in a deposit queue for a few months. Absolutely, Matt. Uh, there's a real disconnect between trying to raise money on a daily basis and put it to work with then having to show your performance on a blended basis uh, where you have a bunch of cash and a bunch of private vehicles. Um, this really brings us back to the, the dichotomy uh, of, of having interval funds where you have a mixture of private funds and public securities. Um, I think that's that critical element to structuring an interval fund that works is namely having some way to put the cash to work in an appropriate manner, both to hold on to the cash and make it, but make it move with the markets over time while you're waiting to get uh, get your investments into private funds that might have a queue, but also allows you to be able to have liquidity on hand to meet your redemptions um, because you you really do have to free up a fair chunk of the portfolio in order to meet one of those periodic redemption offers. Um, you also need to be able to have cash on hand for, for those in advance of, of paying them out. Um, both on the way in and on the way out, having a mix of types of investments is probably one of the ways I see clients trying to manage this, this disconnect between the retail product and the private or institutional product. Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about um, redemptions, which you just alluded to there, and, and then in the context of uh, evaluations. In normal times, uh, a private open-end fund will, will be accepting new contributions and processing redemptions in the ordinary course. But in times where a fund is liquidity constrained, they may set up a redemption queue. And as I'm seeing with many of my open-end fund, fund clients, that's what's happening right now as, as many of those funds are setting up redemption queues for the second quarter. And 
usually the funds are not obligated to sell assets or to borrow funds in order to process redemptions. So how does that uh, interplay with the redemption requirements of, of the interval funds? It's certainly a structural challenge, Matt. Uh, interval funds are required to set their periodic redemptions and have at least 5% of the fund uh, going out or available to go out with each periodic redemption offer. In putting together a vehicle that you'd want uh, to put in this type of structure, you, you've got to think that there are going to be periods where you need to have more liquidity on hand uh, than you might be able to get from the private fund side of the house entirely. Uh, the, the board of the funds does have the ability on a quarterly basis to change the amount uh, of the fund that's being redeemed from between 5 up to 25%. Uh, you do need to deal with the fact that the investor base may want to get some liquidity from the fund. Simply going out and saying you can only get 5% of the fund or uh, only 5% of the shareholders can get out in any one quarter uh, might cause some investors to panic a bit uh, and maybe oversubmit their redemption requests and efforts so as not to get prorated. So you, you can actually have a bit of a run on the bank if you try to restrain those, those uh, percentages too much on the quarterly redemption periods. We started out this discussion by talking about how private funds liked the idea of, of getting capital from registered funds because it was a way for them to access the retail investor market. George, are these products really uh, retail, the, the, the ones that are able to invest in these private real estate funds? It's a great question and, and one that's developing as we speak under current Chair Clayton of the SEC, who has certainly made an effort to give more access uh, for retail investors into slightly more private-type investments. Uh, as we currently stand, there is and, and has been for, for some time an informal SEC staff position that prohibits any registered fund from investing more than 15% of its assets into private funds, uh, unless that registered fund and the interval fund in this case uh, restricts its investor base to accredited investors, which is the same standard that applies to, to private 3C1 funds. Uh, so it's essentially a high net worth individual type of, of test. Uh, while they can um, make public offerings uh, out of out of this kind of a of, a, of an interval fund. Uh, it isn't going to be available to every person on the street who wants to buy a mutual fund. Uh, so there is a limit limitation on just how retail this type of retail product kind of actually can be. Importantly, uh, the term private fund has certainly been interpreted by a number of practitioners as meaning only 3C1 or 3C7 funds. Uh, if you're buying, say, a bunch of closed-ended uh, private funds uh, that are relying on a different exemption, uh, such as the one that applies only to, to real estate-type uh, investments, uh, that might be workable. Uh, but even still, for the standard private open-end real estate funds, there's going to uh, be a limit to the types of investors uh, that can actually buy the interval fund. Um, again, we will have to see once rulemaking starts emerging out of the Chair Clayton's initiatives and what comes out of the recent SEC requests for comment and to see what the industry does and how the uh, SEC is willing to, to open things up going forward. So what's the advantage then of, of accessing these uh, interval funds as a source of capital? George, is there better uh, distribution? Is that is it is it really the... the the distribution channels that the registered fund manager may may 
offer to the private fund manager? I think from the perspective of the private fund manager, um, pretty clearly a great advantage is the distribution channel. That those funds can be marketed on a very similar basis to an open-end registered public fund. Um, that if you're setting up a structure where you, the private fund manager, are getting a number of your funds essentially funneled through an interval fund structure created by a third party, you're going to benefit from whatever distribution channels that third-party sponsor has set up to sell its own funds. As we've seen in the, uh, the markets developing, um, there are a number of relatively retail-themed platforms out there that still restrict investors to accredited investors. Um, the fact that you're not limited by the private fund offering requirements is uh, simply the limitation on the, on the qualification of people coming in really does give you a much broader exposure on the distribution side um, that starts to approximate retail, but you, you just uh, need to keep in mind it's not a panacea that gives you the ability to get the 401k plans or the everyday investor into your, into your vehicles. Pam, is there any difference from a tax perspective between an accredited investor investing directly in, in a private fund or in a, a private feeder? versus investing in a, in a registered fund? There, there is a, a helpful tax difference. Pri private feeders that are partnerships for tax purposes give K-1s to their investors. RICs, again, like REITs, give 1099, which uh, the retail investor, in, including accredited investors that one might consider retail investors, uh, would prefer 1099s. They're simpler. They come early in the year. Um, it, it makes tax reporting easier for the investors. Well, this, is, this has all been very, very helpful, and, and obviously, while there are some issues, I think that interval funds are a good way for uh, retail investors, or at least some retail investors, to get exposure to private real estate, and, and on the other side, for, for private real estate managers to gain access to another growing source of capital. This concludes our discussion regarding interval funds and private real estate funds. Thank you very much to George and Pam for joining me today. And thank you to you, our listeners. If you'd like more information on the topics we discussed or there are other topics of interest to you in the asset management field, please feel free to visit our website at www.ropesgray.com. And of course, feel free to reach out to any of us if you have any questions about these topics. You can also subscribe and listen to this series whenever you regularly listen to podcasts, including on Apple, Google, and Spotify. Thanks again for listening, and have a great day.